Hey, Sam. Hey, Julia. How's it going? Pretty good. Who did we talk to today? We talked to composer Eli Bolin. Eli Bolin. That is a five-star guy. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know what? What? I think he might say that we have a five-star podcast. I don't know if he'd say that. Would, would you, dear listener? W- would you? Will you? Rate and review us in the iTunes store? That would be so nice. Anyway, enjoy. I have a fun Bill Finn story, as oh, long please. as he, does he listen to this podcast. I cannot imagine that he does. So this is, uh, so I yeah, wrote a show called Volley Girls. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Did you see Volley Girls? I haven't seen Volley Girls. I so. saw it, actually. Yeah. You saw Volley Girls at yeah. Nymph? At Nymph, yeah. So there was a workshop of Volley Girls. Um, there were a bunch of different workshops. It, it went through so many changes. Because uh, Susan Blackwell was in it at Nymph, but there right. was a version of it where, uh, for a long time, where the coach was, was a man. And so, like, you know, the pr- the principal was was a woman, and Andrea Burns was was the principal uh-huh. at one point, uh, and so that and Mike Petrie was the music director mm. for forever, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, I begged Bill Finn. You know, b- I love Bill Finn. I love his writing, Me and too. so I begged him to come to uh, a one of the workshops, and so he sat down and he just like. This is a podcast, so I just have to, like, he, like, reached his arm straight out to me <laughs> and just, like, with one finger beckoned me, and he's like, you will sit here. Oh. And he sat, and for literally the entire first act, he would, like, lean over to me and just be like, that song is terrible. What? Oh. La- that song is terrible. You have to cut that song. And then, like, five songs in, he's like, that's the first song I would keep. <laughs> and wow. he was just, like, he was just, like, so, and, you know, he's a huge man. Yeah. Right. And I'm not a very large man. <laughs> And he was like wearing this like big wool coat mm-hmm. and <laughs> it wasn't that cold. And he would. And, and again, if Bill, if you're listening to this, I, 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 I worship you. But <laughs> <laughs> I was so intimidated and I was so excited to have him there. So it was like very it was very stressful. Yeah. And on like the act break, I just like I like had to go into the bathroom and I was like hyperventilating because I was I was just like, oh, my God, Bill Finn hates my show. My show is terrible. Except for song five. I was like, <laughs> I was like except for song five. Uh, which is probably well, probably one of like the two best songs in the show, and uh, it stayed on the show, and it is like the song that we do at concerts and stuff. So oh. what are you gonna, what are you gonna do? What wow. are you gonna do? Wait, so what had been your your relation to him, your relationship to him prior to that? Um, I had well, I just <laughs> I sort of like try to like force myself into like having some kind of relationship with him when I first moved to the city. I had when I when I first moved to the city it was right after college, and I had written this musical in college called. All the children sing, and uh, with some friends of mine, uh, the guys that I wrote it with, and a couple other guys who like were like, we're going to be theater producers right out of college. Um, put it up at what was UCB for a long time oh. afterwards. This theater under a grocery store in Chelsea that was briefly called the Maverick. Uh, it was called I Sing when we did it here in New York. Um, and Vadim Feichner was the music director, mm. and he was Bill Finn's, was still is Bill Finn's right-hand man yeah. after all these years. And this was back in 2001. Oh. Uh, and I actually asked Vadim to, to music direct it because I had seen him, uh, gosh, I don't remember which came first, but I, I knew he was Finn's right-hand man, and I'd like seen him do some stuff. Uh, and I was like, he's, he's Finn's guy, so <laughs> I, I want to work with him, too. Wow. Um, that's like, that's cunning. Yeah. In a good way. In a good yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think I had seen, there's like a Bill Finn CD called Infinite Joy yeah. that was done at Joe's Pub. And yeah. I think I had seen that. Uh-huh. I think that was like fall of 2000. Then I And I went and saw that concert like several times. Uh-huh. So you can hear me like cackling on the <gasps> CD, I think. Really? <laughs> yeah. You can pick out your own laugh? You can. I can pick out my own laugh <laughs> on it, yeah. Really? Because I think I went to uh, like both of the tapings that uh-huh. they did for it. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah. Um, and then I like introduced myself, you know, to, yeah. to Bill and I like invited, I like invited Bill to a bunch of stuff and some things he came to and some he didn't, oh. and, you know, That's so, 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 but at the point when you're sitting next to him at this d- presentation of a reading, right? Yeah. Um, what, like, <laughs> was it like, was it like extremely intimidating or was it just like. Oh, that's Bill, and he's oh, kind at of a at curmudgeon. And at that point, it was extremely, in, extremely intimidating. Okay. And he didn't call me by my name. He kept calling me composer. <laughs> oh, wow. The entire time he was there, he never once called me by my name. I mean, wow. he also possibly didn't remember my name. <laughs> it was like, composer. 
come here, composer. Oh, boy. Like, I, d- I didn't like that song, composer. Oh. <laughs> but then it's weird. Then he, like, came out and, like, had drinks with us afterwards uh-huh. for a while. So that was strange, too. And then he was, like, very friendly, even though he had, like, completely eviscerated the show. It was constructive criticism. It was constructive criticism. I think, I mean, in, in his mind, I think, uh, and based on how I've heard he has been with students, I think he felt like he was doing like a like an amazing thing for us yeah. by like tearing the show to pieces. And he, and I think I think all, you know he he was like giving of himself yeah. freely yeah, in, in that way, way. I feel like his criticism is like the purest kind, and that I feel like he rarely suggests what to do. Like he basically just gives you like a sentiment of like yes I'm liking this or no I'm not yeah you had him as a teacher right? yeah 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 did you so at the end of the day after you like went into the bathroom and hyperventilated like did no. you find his feedback useful like did you you know I mean I think he was right yeah. about most of the things that he said uh-huh. I don't think it was necessarily useful in the sense that he wasn't offering solutions he right. was just mm-hmm. saying what was bad <laughs> but it was like did it 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 like um, like cued your mind. To yeah, because like I like think oh. I think we were kind of complacent. I uh-huh. I felt complacent. I was like, this is this is great. I mean, I, I knew that there were some things that weren't. I knew that some things weren't great. I I knew that already, but the extent to which he was like, so much of this <laughs> is bad, uh, felt like a really extreme and was like it was definitely like a bucket of cold water or a slap in the face. Yeah. Uh, and after I calmed down, I was like, yeah, a lot of this. It's not great. And then, like, uh, when I shared this with, like, other, other people on the team, they were like, he was being way too hard. Like, like you know, like, fuck that. Like, he was being, like, way too hard on us. And then, and then I was like, well, actually, you know, <laughs> there's let's let's take a step back and, like, really, like, look at what he said. Yeah. And, you know, then, and I think ultimately, like, where the show got was a lot better. Um, and, you know, we continue to – we have, like, the show does exist on a shelf, like, two or <laughs> yeah. three drafts past – what we had at Nymph, uh-huh. um, and hopefully, you know, something will happen with it someday. But for a variety of reasons, the show had a lot of momentum at Nymph, and then nothing happened. Huh. Uh, Isn't that the most frustrating feeling in the world? Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like all of those threads, like, how often do you think, because I feel like, you know, now, you know, like, I've been, like, here writing shows for, like, a little over a decade, and, like, when you have more than one show, like, it's hard to know how much is like healthy. I feel like to like check back in on like whether one of the older ones will continue to live or not. Yeah, I totally, totally. I mean, I mean, well, you know, I mean, well, you know, but hmm. your listening audience doesn't know that. Like, you're probably like my favorite contemporary musical theater composer. <laughs> so like, so well, one that's the one honor that like uh, that's I'm so happy to be here. Um, so like, it's crazy to me that you're not like hugely successful at this point, <laughs> and. <laughs> That like Julia's so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to talk about that a lot, but you know, like I've I've said I've I've said this to you before, um, and and I'm and I'm sober saying it this time, so you know that I mean it because I've said it to you like at like 54 below when I'm like like a show has just finished and I'm like I've like had a drink and I'm like Julia. You're my favorite composer. Which we know really just means that 54 Below makes great artisanal cocktails. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you, 54 Below. Um, <laughs> but, no, but I, like, I really, really love your work. And, like, I, and I, 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 like, hear a song of yours, and I'm like, why doesn't, like, everybody know this stuff? And all of that is, like, for us. Like, the fact that, like, like the pregnancy pact isn't, like, known by everybody and performed everywhere and, like, doesn't have, like, a Broadway cast recording is insane to me. And Thank you. you just <laughs> never, I don't know. It's so like, th- like, I don't know, like if anything is still happening with like that show, for example, cause I know like that show is from like a while ago now, Yeah. but like why I- is there anything happening with that show? Let's see. We're actually like our quest now is like, like the, the line we would love to cross is to figure out how people get things licensed. Mm-hmm. Like we would love for it to be licensed, but, we don't really know how to make licensing houses interested in it. I guess I can plug. It's having a little teeny tiny production in Windsor, Ontario, and then Toronto. Oh, great. So I'm going to go in like a couple weeks and like fly out and see it. That's wonderful. So that's a thing. But yeah, for you know many years, nothing, nothing, nothing was happening with it. Right, well, any, any podcast listeners in <laughs> Windsor, Ontario, or Toronto, you, you would be very remiss to not go see that show. We have show. a wide international audience. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I have I have some friends in Toronto, so I will if you let me know the details, I will make sure they go see I it. Well, yeah, yeah. Do you do you have like a guess for your various shows right now? Like, of like if you had to pick one of your current shows, which one you think is gonna like would like break out in the biggest way? I, 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 you know, I, on, I honestly don't. The one thing, if I've, if I've learned anything in all my years writing, it's that nobody knows anything, and I don't know anything. Yeah. And I will be, like, convinced that something is going to happen. Like, during Nymph, I, I was convinced that Volley Girls was going to, like, transfer off Broadway because, like, it had, like, tremendous buzz. We had yeah. to add performances. Uh, it, like, won all the Nymph Awards, and, like, people were, like, a lot of people wanted to see it who couldn't. I was like, well, this is, something's going to happen. Yeah. But due to, a, you know, a bunch of things, like, me, like on the production end in particular, uh, it just, it just failed to happen. Like, people couldn't make it happen. So, like, it, there, there you go. And then it just, like, kind of snowballed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... You know, like, uh, yeah, I did that my show, Found. Yeah, I, Found is one that I th- would think should be everywhere. Thank you. I love that show so I much. Agree. We were talking I, about this. I literally can't remember. I don't think I've laughed as hard since, or I can't remember laughing as hard before as, like, what was it? Like, the Johnny Johnny Tremaine. Tremaine. <laughs> I, yeah, I lost my damn mind. <laughs> Johnny Tremaine is funny, and I, c- I can't really take any credit for Johnny Tremaine. Well, that's all. That's all Hunter and Lee. But the whole and the whole show was and like the so incredible. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where like the you know like the original idea and the material is so good, and it's like the idea is so good, and you could just see it like whiffing so badly, but it like truly elevates it. Oh, I love it so much. Thanks. Well, you know, it's like it's a show that's like still in development, and I hope that something comes of it. Like there, there are some some irons in the fire for it and it's like i you know when you work on a show for such a long time there's like a certain and i'm like working on other stuff now too so it's like right. part of me is like all right well like if it's gonna happen like let's make it happen because like how do you how do you know like w- when to prioritize what well um with something like found at this point it's like it's like well if the because it still has the same producers attached to it at mm-hmm. this point uh-huh. uh like they they partnered with atlantic and then uh, you know, it it had like a cult following, I guess, with certain people at the Atlantic, where like certain young people would like come back. But the Atlantic subscribers didn't really get it. Mm. They're ten- they're like more of an older audience, and and it didn't have enough traction with uh the right, I guess, like the right people coming to see it, where it was filling houses to the extent where like they would extend it. Like it didn't have the kind of trajectory that like like where the band's visit transferred mm. or like right. uh, spring awakening transferred. It like didn't have that enough of a push where like that production would move on. Mm. So uh, we, you know, we rewrote it. We did it in Philadelphia and uh, that version had some improvements and some things were like, uh, you know, we don't like those changes that we made. And so then we all moved on to other things for a while. Now we've come back and like, I really like the draft that we have. And now it's just a question of like, I-, I think the producers are kind of like figuring out if they can like get interest in this draft. And yeah. if they can, then that's great. And it'll move on possibly. And, uh, and well, you know, we'll just we're just kind of waiting to see what, what the deal is right now. <sighs> it's, that, it's that always that, that waiting thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is sort of, I don't know if this is like an appropriate thing or not appropriate thing to talk about, but Danny Pudi, who was in the Atlantic thing, mm-hmm. am I saying his name right? Yeah, Danny Pudi, yeah. Is, to me, like a, fin- you know, like a humongous like celebrity from TV. Was that surreal, like collaborating with him? Uh, yeah, it was a little surreal, but he's, he's a very, very, very down-to-earth, like very down-to-earth chill guy. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I was a new dad, like a brand new dad at that point. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he had really small kids, and so that was just like a an opening in terms of like something to talk <laughs> about, I guess. Um, so he wasn't, you know, and like I I was a fan of his from Community, but I think if if somebody was not watching Community, they wouldn't necessarily know who he was. Yeah, like he wasn't like true. a megastar in in terms of like, you know, like a very s- a certain audience would would think of him as a huge star but i think a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't know who he was um so i don't know he was he was very easy to work with like very very easy to work with and pretty egoless in a way that a lot of people aren't 
I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the I remember when I came to see Found, the people sitting next to me were clearly like huge fans of his. Yeah, yeah. I guess from I'm the community. Yeah. And like, but like to the point that it was like almost distracting because anytime he would do anything, they would just kind of like descend into like giggle fits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even if like the show had sort of already moved on to some <laughs> to something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm always curious about that. Like I remember seeing. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal was in that play at Roundabout Off Broadway. Um, that was like a very much an ensemble play, like four person play, mm-hmm. and like just by the fact that he was Jake Gyllenhaal, the play sort of like bent into his mm-hmm. like gravity, and so he sort of became the like central figure. Whereas I think if there had been, if like the the sort of like celebrity level of all the actors had been more evenly matched, I think it would have felt much more of an ensemble piece. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to think if there's other shows I've seen like that where there was like a yeah, a and sometimes casting. you sometimes you don't even realize because you just assume the piece is meant to be that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's uh the way that all the pieces come together sometimes is is the make or the break. Yeah, and it also is like you were saying, like you don't even know. I guess Jake Gyllenhaal, everyone knows, but like what percentage of your audience is going to perceive that person as, like, the special person. Um, I was saying to Julia before you showed up, one of the things that I love the most about Found is, like, the song, you know, all of the, like, Found lyrics, Mm -hmm. um, they don't rhyme. Like, I I think that's, I I really like songs that don't rhyme. I guess I'm, like, curious, like, how you approach, like, setting those lyrics. Um, it's, uh, it's funny. I, I have, I have been asked about this before and yeah. I, and I never really have a great answer for it. I basically, uh, and this is something that I've done with kids writing a lot initially. Cause I, I was, uh, I helped start this group called the story right. pirates. And one of my jobs there when it started, uh, there's like a whole bunch of musicians and songwriters there now. And I've kind of stepped back. Uh, and just I'm more of like a, a, in a supervisory position there now. But when it started, for years, I was the only musician. I was the only songwriter. Uh, and what I did most of the time was I would just take what a kid wrote and try to turn their text into a lyric without yeah. altering it at all. And sometimes I would take their story and, and adapt it, like write my own lyrics based on the story that they wrote. But I gradually found that it was more fun to like not alter their text at all uh-huh. and so generally my technique and i would do this for found also is i would type up the text and then i would first i would divide it into sections and like turn it into like paragraphs like figure out like where the natural breaks were and then i would go through those paragraphs and i would figure like okay like this is the end of a sentence or this is the end of a thought and then i would divide it into lines uh and then And then within those lines, then I would go and see if, like, what felt like a singable, like, what felt like the end of, like, would be a lyric, and then, like, hit return, and then just try to create, like, a lyric shape for it. Yeah. Um, And then as I'm doing that, if anything, like, if I would start singing something to myself, if it, like, really does feel like it's taking the shape of a lyric, generally a melody will start to come at that time, and I'll move to an instrument. And then... It, then it just kind of starts happening organically. Like there isn't really more of a method to it than that. Or sometimes the melody will start coming before I am have finished dividing it, uh, at which point I'll just move to the instrument and worry about the dividing later. Yeah. And then the dividing, I'll start to visualize it as I'm like looking at the text and I'll just like start like marking it. Uh, sometimes I'll like print it out and I'll like mark it on, on the paper instead of like doing it on the computer. That's, you know, it's all generally like, the same general idea, uh-huh. but and yeah. At some point in there, do you feel like you are sort of like imposing a sense of form, like sort of song form, onto it? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's the goal. The goal is yeah. definitely like finding the song form or finding finding the music yeah. <laughs> in the words. I mean, that that is definitely like what I'm I'm trying to do, and just like you know, like it's it feels like pretentious to say it, but like it's like it's I don't mean that in that way at all. But like <laughs> that there is whatever like the rhythm or of the person everybody everybody 
has some kind of rhythm to what they wrote, even if it's like chaotic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like finding what that is and then trying to match some kind of music to it. Um, And then, uh, yeah, and then sometimes I will take the occasional liberty that I will take is is repetition. Mm -hmm. Um, If something feels like a hook in like the main point of what they said, then I will repeat it and seed it through the the piece. Um, And sometimes it's just as simple as taking the first line and doing it again at the end, which I did in a few found songs. It's got to be so thrilling. Like I feel like I've seen over the course of my life, like people who, you know, like study music and then they're trying to like, you know, make a buck on it and we'll advertise a a service that's like, tell me about something, you know, and I'll write a song based on your life. And I'd always thought like, oh, I don't know, I would feel so misrepresented. But to me, I'm just thinking that, like, the idea of having any text I wrote taken organically as text and turned into a song in that way sounds like such an honor. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that for you. <gasps> <laughs> oh, my God, I would do like you, that so do much. Do you feel like it comes, like, naturally to you? Like, how I d- or I guess how does it compare to, like, like setting a lyric that's, like, written as a lyric? You know what I mean? Um, it's, pr- it's pretty... There's some, I mean, you know, there's similarities and, and there's differences. Yeah. It does. It feels like it comes naturally to me now, yeah. Because I feel like I've done my like ten thousand hours sure. or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. they say. Yeah. Uh, just because I I did it f- for so many years yeah. that it's. I feel like it's just like something that I understand. Was it a thing that w- when you started? I guess Story Pirates started before Found, right? Yeah, Story Pirates started back in I want to say like two thousand two, two thousand three. Yeah. Wow. So when when you started doing it there, was that something that you were like, had always like been interested in trying or was it just sort of like, oh, I guess I'm doing this now. You know what I mean? It was just like one of the, one of the ways we adapted songs. Yeah. And it was generally a method of adapting like shorter things that like right. little kids wrote where right. there was like simple, very simple texts with very few words. So it made sense like, oh, well for this, you would just use only the text the kid wrote because you're not going to extrapolate on like, you know, 10 or 20 words. Right. <laughs> um, am I using extrapolate right? <laughs> I think I do- so. I don't know. I think so. You're not going to expand on 10 yeah. or 20 right. words. You're not going to, you know, add a, add a bunch of stuff and embellish it. Because I definitely, when I started doing that, uh, writing those kinds of songs um, or writing songs for Story Pirates, I, I would do more of the adapting and like writing more musical theater style lyrics based on what a kid wrote. Gotcha. And then it, it evolved into more just using what the kid wrote, which was, I thought, just more interesting to me and more true to what the kids are writing because yeah. it's what the kid wrote. Yeah. yeah. God, that's crazy that it's been going on for so many years. Yeah. Do you have any sense for, like, how many, like, like Story Pirates things have been written? I mean, it must be, like, a humongous number. I mean, th- thousands, I'm sure, at this that's point. Crazy. I mean, be it between, like, you know, because I'd say m- the vast majority of what Story Pirates does is is non-songs, you know, like songs mm. are just like a, a fraction of what Story Pirates does. So it's for our listening audience, do, what is the Story Pirates mission and what do they do? Story Pirates uh, is a both entertainment and education and goes to schools all over the country and uh, also performs, you know, for, for entertainment and like venue live, you know, theaters and libraries and everywhere uh, and takes stories that kids write and turns them into songs and sketches. Like sketch comedy written by kids, <laughs> and then do they get some sort of artifact of that? Like an artifact of it, like like a recording or like like the script or whatever. Like uh, well, know. they do they do get every kid gets their st- original story back with like comments and notes oh. and like stuff from the story pirates on it. Uh, and I imagine I think it depends on the school or the venue, like whether or not like the show is gets taped. I'm actually not 100 percent sure mm-hmm. about that. But God, so like the youngest kids who like the first kids who like were like audiences of story parties are like in college now. Or oh yeah, graduated. That's crazy. For sure, yeah, absolutely. I, I so rarely think about that, but yeah, they're <laughs> they're pretty old now. <laughs> yeah, and the story parts have a have a podcast, which, yeah. uh, you know, each each episode has either two stories or a story and a song, uh, and the songs are like like really well produced mm-hmm. and and like they sound pretty great. Awesome. Yeah. I have not actually listened to the Story Pirates podcast. Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's fun. Add it to my queue. It's fun. I don't have a ton to do with it, but I do write some songs for it. And nice. it's it's a nice it's a, it's a nice little podcast, yeah. 
So you also do stuff for Sesame Street, yeah? I do. So do you feel like when doing music stuff for like, you know, like a young audience, do you feel like you like translate the way you think about the music in a certain way? Uh, I guess so, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of even like the way that I wrote music for or write music for Story Pirates is influenced a lot by like growing up with, with Sesame Street. I mean, I, I, li- I, I really absorbed that style of music uh, growing up. And I feel like I was like ready to write for Sesame Street like <laughs> for a long time before I started. When I first moved to the city, I actually tried to contact Sesame Workshop and like really tried hard to get my foot in the door. But it was a pretty insular environment. Mm. And I, I just couldn't do it. I could not. For, for years, I would try periodically. And, sure. and it, w- it was just like they know who they know and they work with who they work with. And you... you yeah, they don't. They don't need you. They're not interested. Um, but I felt like I. I mean, I, I had all like the Sesame Street records. I felt like I had internalized. There's definitely like a style, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of like a quasi vaudeville, like seventies <laughs> seventies musical theater pop slash vaudeville style yeah. that <laughs> like um, Joe Raposo and Jeff Moss were like the two main writers in the seventies, uh, and they wrote like basically everything. And they also wrote the songs for not the Muppet movie, but the Great Muppet Caper and Muppets Take Manhattan, oh wow. um, and then pretty much all the '70s Sesame Street music. So I felt like I understood that pretty well, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much the aesthetic that they use today, with the exception of a couple of the writers who do more like contemporary pop with like programming and stuff, uh, which is great because <laughs> that that's that's <laughs> what I I feel like I can bring to the table for mm-hmm. them. Um, and, and my boss, uh, Bill Sherman, who is the person who finally hired me there when he took over, uh, says that I'm the guy that they have who is the most musical theater guy. So he gives me the musical theater stuff, which is good because like, I guess that's a need that they have sometimes. And what does that mean? That, um, they do have a lot of like shorter pop structured songs, Uh um, which is like the stuff that like the celebrity guests sing, right? Which means that unfortunately that I don't get to really write <laughs> songs for the celebrity guests. <laughs> but whenever there's like longer songs with sections and like different characters sing, and then there's like gotcha. breaks for dialogue, and then we like move to a different section, and then like two other characters sing, and then they like join in harmony, and mm-hmm. then there's like a more breaks for dialogue. Like there's our songs like that, gotcha. and musical I generally <laughs> musical sequences with like, yeah, I I tend to get those to write. Interesting. Cool. So that's the way it works there. It's like there's a lyric or something, and then they pick like who's gonna set this one. Pretty much, yeah, huh. yeah, um, yeah. The basically the I get I'll get a, a call or an email from Bill, and he'll say songs coming your way, and then like ten minutes later I'll get an email with a script in it, and uh, it'll be like the whole script, and they'll generally be just like a song or like a song in a reprise. Uh, each segment is like like a 10 minute segment that is like part of a larger episode. And, and so my job is to do whatever sung music is in there. And do they give you anything like, Oh, we think the feel, you know, like genre or style or sometimes if it's like definitely like a genre kind of song, otherwise it's, it's pretty much up to me. Um, And sometimes uh, I, I will, you know, speak with the writer if, if, depending on like the writers sometimes the writers just like do whatever you want and sometimes they have a specific you know thing that they want to talk to me about uh other than that i I generally have freedom to do what i want especially i've I've been there for almost nine years now yeah they trust so so i'll just kind of go for it and i'll send it to bill and he'll give me notes and And is it like a, a demo that you do at home or i do a demo at home i do everything in in logic and i'll so i'll mock something up in in logic and uh, I'll send it off. And like once there's a final version, they will use, they will build on top of what I made in Logic. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Basically. Cool. And they will, sh- they will record, I, th- I think this is what happens. It's sometimes, it, it's a little different sometimes, but they'll generally record vocals on top of the track that I make. Um, and they'll shoot to that. And then after the season has wrapped, the th- what they do in post-production is add the Sesame Street Band oh, wow. uh-huh. to what I made with the click track. 
Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. And they record all of the Sesame Street band in like a series of sessions in like one big chunk of time. That makes sense. So at that point, then, does any of your tracks stay in or the Sesame Street band totally replaces? I think they totally replace everything. Interesting. Because it's everything. That's why everything sounds like so organic because it's all real instruments. And uh, the associate music director, this guy named uh, Joe Fiedler, uh, does all the orchestrations for the whole season. And he's awesome. He's really awesome. He's like, I mean, he makes it sound like Sesame Street. Mm. Yeah. Cool. I guess I'm kind of (laughs) curious. I say that so often. (laughs) It's your your trademark. (laughs) It's my trademark. Um, Same curiosity held. It's your autobiography title. (laughs) Yeah. I'm kind of curious. So I'm kind of curious. Like, do you, do like, as you're saying, like, you're sort of their go-to guy for, like, the sort of, like, more musical theater songs and, like, I don't know. Like, I guess I'm curious, like, do you have in your like do you feel like you have a certain style or do you feel like i don't know i feel like i do have a style of my own but i tend to also get asked to do things that are genre yeah well i want to talk about co-op too yeah Yeah. but it's 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 i feel like a strength of mine is like aping genres uh which is good because i I get work that way yeah. and it is it has opened some doors for me and I and I don't entirely know where that comes from but I've gotten to I've had to do like sound alikes for things over the years uh-huh. or like sound alikes or like genre parodies and I think it's just like a muscle that I've worked on like yeah. a musical muscle um a lot of that has been stuff from like story pirates yeah, where I've sure. had to like write songs that sound kind of like other songs or just like for f- and mostly for fun. Just like we're like working on on like usually like a song that's like embedded within a story and not like a full on song I've had to write where it's like, let's write a song that sounds like this. So let's write a song that sounds like that. Um, and it'll be like a tiny little song. And then it's just like something that I've. So it's something that I like developed for fun. And then like. Over, like over a decade ago, like my friend um, Kristen Shaw from Northwestern, I'm na- dropping some names. She shot it. a comedy special and she asked me if I could do a song that sounded like, um, oh gosh, what is it? The song from Dirty Dancing. I've had the time of my life uh-huh. mm-hmm. uh, as a pre record because she had been doing this live bit in her stand up acts where she used uh, I've Just Had the Time of My Life and she couldn't for they couldn't afford to for this Mm -hmm. this legal reasons comedy central wouldn't pay for that (laughs) uh, understandably so i um uh recorded this song called we've had the specialist times like i wrote (laughs) the song and then uh my wife allison you know allison Allison posner who's awesome uh we sang it together and, and made this recording that she used for the special um and I still get like a very, very tiny <laughs> royalty check for like ten cents, like once every couple of years for for that. Wonderful. Um, and then for her next special, I wrote like an Eye of the Tiger, mm-hmm. like it's like instrumental sound alike, because uh-huh. again, it was like a thing that she was doing, and she she couldn't use that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some other, gosh, there's just oh, and then for Sesame Street, like there was. Um, I wrote like an I am what I am from Lacage sound like for Cookie Monster. And then <laughs> a few years after that, I wrote like several. There was like a an extended like Les Mis thing. Mm. Uh, so I had to write like several small Les Mis sound alike. I've seen that. Uh, there's like, do you hear the cookies crunch? And like <laughs> oh co- cookie on a cloud <laughs> and like all these things. Um, so I. Uh, so there's like a whole bunch of like Les Mis ones that I did. I'm actually curious. I've just, the, the concept of a sound alike is a like relatively new one to me. I was just talking about this this weekend. What is sort of like the specifications like of what you're allowed to do with a sound alike? Like how close can it get? Um, is that specific? I think you can have like, I, I, I'm not 100% sure. I think there can be like two or maybe even three notes in a row that are the same. Um, and then it has to veer off. Um, Harmonic I, I structure, can you keep it the same? Or? 
I, you know, I don't know because what I try to do is is not use any of the same chord progressions mm. or any of the same notes next to each other. But I, I try to do the same feel and the same. I'll copy the f- the feeling mm-hmm. and similar chord relationships, mm-hmm. um, like a similar like chord library, and a similar like what feels to me because I I I don't I'm not like a real music theorist I'm I taught myself m- almost everything, um, so it's all just kind of intuitive for me. And so I'm like, this sounds kind of like it, but then I like go through and I make sure that it's not the same. Uh, so that's really all I have to go on. That's interesting. So you boil it down to something of like, oh, the essence is this, and you try to recreate it from there. I try to write my own. Yeah, I try to. So I, I never like listen to the thing and then immediately write the thing. I right. just like try to recall like, oh, I think I, like with Les Mis, it's a little harder because like I know those songs like mm. by heart. Right. So like <laughs> I could go to the piano right now and just like play those songs. It's, that's, that's different. Um, but yeah, it's, but by that same token, it's like, I, I feel like I could like, it's not, I feel like it's not hard with the Les Mis songs only because like they're pretty simple mm-hmm. to like improvise a song. It's like, well, I'm just not going to go to that chord. I'm going to go to another chord. And so like the melody has to be different because right. it's yeah. not going to really like fit that this chord instead of that chord right so so difficult to me but yeah but you can do a lot of things that i can't do so (laughs) well i feel like i do come from the opposite end of the spectrum which is i feel like i'm one of those ones where it's like no matter how hard i try it always basically just sounds like me doing my kind of thing you know what i mean (laughs) like i love trying to use genre but for the opposite end of the spectrum just to get like even like five percent different you know what Mm -hmm. i mean I don't know. I mean, whatever your th- whatever your thing is, I know that I can't do it, and it's like one of my favorite things to hear <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Thank you. That is so nice. Um, we should just take that part of the podcast and play it on loop. Yeah, yeah, on those lonely nights. <laughs> um, so that's all super interesting, and I'm curious. Like, so do y- like do you do you like. Do you ever do you think often about like the idea of like your style or like your like voice to sound whatever? I, I do when I'm writing something and I find myself wanting to go to certain chords uh-huh. and melodic progressions where I find my that I'm like quoting myself. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, particularly when Allison will be like You've done that before. <laughs> uh, I do have like my favorite things that I like to do yeah. that I don't think other people do a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I that I think that like where I'm like, oh, that's me. But people don't. <laughs> but people wouldn't necessarily know that unless they listen to all my stuff. And right. there, I don't think that there really are any people like that. That's um, not true. I don't know. I I, I, I think it's pretty true. But may- maybe someday <laughs> it 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 you know that'll that'll change but i I, I love that it's like the easter eggs for your scholars yeah exactly it's um it's uh, you know it's something like there's something that frank zappa used to do intentionally that he would call conceptual continuity where he would because he was a very trained composer and so he would put like fragments of like one song like what would be like a tiny like bridge or something in the background of one song and it would be like the main melody of like another song like five years later that's Ooh. not what i'm doing i i just happen to like accidentally like reuse little pieces of songs <laughs> in another song um and sometimes it, it's like really cool like in found uh there's two songs uh like for example like uh that the character uh denise which barrett weed played her two main songs are these songs called Barf Bag Breakup and Stupid Love. And I only realized like about a month ago that there's like this one piece of melody, which is identical in both songs where <laughs> she goes, da, 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 da. And Barf Bag Breakup, she sings, um, uh, right now you should take care of things. Uh, and then in Stupid Love, she sings, um, uh, I forget. Anyway, it's <laughs> this, she sings the exact same melody to l- and, and like a, and like another like significant part of that song. I was oh like, my oh my gosh, like if, it's a, it's a total accident, but, like, if you didn't know that, you would think, wow, what, like, a great intentional thing to do. Yeah, yeah, what a callback. But it's just me, like, writing the same show at the same time, you know, like, writing. Which I feel like you do have to, like, like, I feel like, yeah, like, the first couple of years I was writing, I didn't notice that I had those things. But now, you know, when you're on, 
you know, like the 11 o'clock salad for like your fourth show or your fifth show. And you're like, oh, I guess like when things feel like this, to me, like the most natural way to express this is like this sort of shape. Mm-hmm. Like I think someone was just commenting, we were rehearsing something this weekend and it was like, oh, they you love like a big leap to a weird note. And I was like, yeah, I guess. Like I never went just like, oh, here's where I do that. But I do love a big leap to a weird note. I've noticed that too. <laughs> <laughs> like I can't help it. Like I, I love... Before I, if I'm gonna resolve to a one, I love to play, like the nine chord, like oh god, what it's like, it's like the seven, like like if the song's in C, Mm -hmm. I would love to play like a B flat nine before I go back to the C. Mm, I really like that too. That's a nice move. Yeah, (laughs) but like I don't know like what the technical name for that chord would be like. Because I always like to be like, so you go from like the four to like the six to like, (laughs) but like I'm still like not my accuracy on what i'm saying there is oh yeah no my theory is terrible and i also always think of everything as if it's in c major oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's easier for me to to do that thing when i'm thinking in c yeah one thing that i can do i don't have i don't have perfect pitch but i have good relative pitch Mm -hmm. so i can transpose my own stuff generally pretty well Mm. depends on what i'm transposing it to yeah the more flats I introduce, the harder <laughs> it gets. Do you feel like it's this only a little bit related? But like, since you do have in your wife a collaborator and singer, mm-hmm. do you find that you has it informed the way you like write for singers? Like watching her learn things and watching her work with things. Yes, absolutely. And she also is very helpful in terms of helping me with the singability of things, mm-hmm. uh, because I tend to write very, very rangy material without thinking about how difficult they are to sing and she's really helpful in <laughs> terms of and sometimes it's frustrating because she, but she'll be like j- just the other a uh, couple nights ago I'm, I'm working on a new thing uh that that is supposed to be for like middle school children to sing uh-huh. um and and she she I, I right in the basement and and the kids you know there's a sleep upstairs and she comes down and she says she says you know that a kid is supposed to sing that right <laughs> and I was like yeah and she's like kids not gonna be able to sing that i was like yeah yeah i I can see how you're probably right about that (laughs) because it it like for the most part the song was like pretty singable and then towards the end i'm just like i'm like wailing on these like high notes you're like up the octave and it's modulate modulate. (laughs) yeah the song the song kept modulating it was just like very i was writing this like very like sort of like laura nero like fifth dimension-y kind of song it was like I was going like da 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 modulate da 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 I was like, it's isn't this funny how it keeps modulating? It's like it's like yeah, but if like a twelve year old kid is singing this, like I don't want to like show up and then have the song be unsingable. Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna vet that. I was gonna vet that at some point, but like some kid will be able to do it. But like, why get so far into the process? Like, why not? I should be thinking about that already. So she's she's very very helpful with with that kind of stuff i mean she's helpful with, with a lot of stuff and also with like coming up with harmonies and things Aww. and just like i mean she's very musical v- musically knowledgeable in like a, a technical way that i am not which is very helpful so interesting yeah and you're am i remembering right that one of your sons has like a moment of fame with beatles songs yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Our son Walter. I mean, he's he's almost five. He's gonna be five on June first. But when he was two and a half, he was really into into the Beatles one CD. And he could just for fun one night we played a game of uh, like name that song. So we like queued up the CD and wanted to see how fast he could name the songs. <laughs> and so he named them all like at least like the first like fifteen or sixteen songs. He like named them all within like. Maybe more than that, like tw- the first twenty songs or something. There's like thirty songs now, uh, like within like two, three, four seconds. He was wow. like, he was just like, he was just like so happy. He was just like shouting out the names of the songs. <laughs> and so we like just like posted the video for fun. And then um, one of Al's friends who uh, was in charge of like finding cute videos for like the New York Post's uh, like video page um, on Facebook. I was like, can I post this? And she's like, sure. So he like, someone in that department like ed- did like an edited version of the video and posted it, and it it went 
pretty viral for them and ended up getting like two or three million views. Oh my God. Uh, and so from that, we got like, well, the first thing that happened was Apple Records, you know, the Beatles mm-hmm. company sent us this like big care package <laughs> of like CDs and DVDs and Beatles clothes. Oh uh, it was really, really cool. That is and really cool. And we sent them a thank you letter. And then the other thing, but then the crazy thing that happened was there's this, uh, the, the, the Cavern Club in Liverpool, um, they throw this festival every year called International Beetle Week, where like they own like three different clubs, and then they like get all these bands to come, like mostly like cover bands from like all over the world, like every country in the world, like bands that like basically like most most of them <laughs> dress up like the Beatles in yeah. some way or another, or they just play like you know Beatles songs, and mm-hmm. then they get like people who are kind of like tertiary figures. Am I using tertiary right? Like oh, yeah. on the <laughs> outskirts yeah. of Beetle, mm-hmm. the Beatle world. Uh, like people who like worked for the Beatles or were, like musicians that were like friends with the Beatles, like, you know, like Paul and Ringo aren't going to this thing, but like people <laughs> who knew the Beatles and were friends with the Beatles go. Um, and it's like this week long thing in Liverpool and lots of people go like lots of Beatle nuts go. And I, and I consider myself like a huge Beatle nut, but it's like not the kind of thing I would necessarily make a pilgrimage to go to. Mm-hmm. There's like Beatles festivals around here that like I might go to, but like. I, I, I still haven't. But anyway, so they invited us as a family uh, to like on their dime to go out to Liverpool and like attend the festival with the catch that they wanted us as a family to perform at the festival. Oh, as if that's a catch. <laughs> well, it was pretty stressful, to be honest, oh, when yeah. you've got the heavily. Did they pre- know that you and Allison were both. Li- mm-hmm. oh, OK. <laughs> but they wanted Walter to pr- to perform also because oh. they had seen like pictures of Walter with like a ukulele and they're like and they had seen like videos they like watched like videos of him like singing but he's like you know two two and a half right and we're like well that's you know we'll, we'll do the best we can and to his credit like Walter like does love being on stage and he got up on stage with us but they were like we want you to do five shows and we're like we can't do five shows and they're like okay well then we want you to do four shows (laughs) so there were two days of that of those like several days we were there where we did two shows a day uh and it was it was too much it was too much for him yeah Uh, i'm thinking back i mean this isn't that related but i'm thinking to my wedding where my flower girl was i think four at the time and like almost quit because of the pressure and that's just like walking and throwing flowers I mean, I'd say for like a couple of like he could have done like two would have been fine. Four mm-hmm. was four was too many. By the by the last show, <laughs> Walter was like hooting like an owl on stage because <laughs> he was just like overwhelmed. <laughs> but we made sure the rest of the trip was like really easy and fun for him. Cool. Um, but yeah, it was crazy. Like that. Like yeah, that's and Allison was like heavily pregnant with Harry, who oh. is now Man. who is now. So Walter Walter was three by the time we were in Liverpool, and then. Allison was pregnant, uh, very pregnant, because uh, it was August, I think, that we were there. And then in November, Harry was born, who is now 16 months old. And time just keeps keeps trucking on. Yeah. And like now, Wal- like Walter, you know, because kids that are that little, they don't, you don't retain those memories. Like Walter doesn't really remember that trip already, because that was like, over, that was over two years ago, wow. you know, like that was like two and a half years ago. So. It's crazy. Like he sees pictures that he'll you show him a picture and he'll be like, "Yeah, I remember that." But then, like you ask him, and he's, he do, he doesn't remember. He doesn't just he'll oh. see the picture. If you show a little kid a picture of something when they were little, they'll they'll say they remember it, but they they don't. Huh. <laughs> that is crazy. I mean, I guess it makes sense because that's how memory works, and like you know, physiologically. But like like that's I feel like a bigger experience than like most of the experiences I have, and for it to just be like gone yeah it's gone it's really so there's like things that are very profound to me that like ha- like moments we shared when he was little and yeah. he'll never remember them and like that's that's like a profound sadness to me yeah when but does that kick in when do memories start being permanent usually around like four or five okay so now you can log some real stuff with him yeah for sure <laughs> wow. but like he'll never remember before his brother was born he'll never wow. none of the stuff when he was an only child he'll never remember any of that I would imagine. I mean, like, for it being a family three with your first child, like, that's got to, yeah, like, that's, like, a poignant time. Yeah. There's, like, so many special memories I have of that time. 
and like when I realized that he'll never remember any of that, like I like I had like a little cry over that. You know, like it was very uh, not to bring it back to the podcast, but it's <laughs> very much like theater. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> like we can edit some of that. No, out. no, no, never. I, no, no, like, my favorite. The farther we go, those always end up being my favorite parts. Yeah, but that's like that. <laughs> I. I've had, I don't know if I've had a cry about it, but like I've definitely had feelings about the fact that like some things that I've done like are just sort of like lost to time. Mm-hmm. Like um, what? Like, like shows that I've done or yeah. yeah, projects I've worked on. I will say some something, I don't know like how many parents you guys talk to, but as a writer who's a parent, one thing that is, is like something that I've noticed is that like so many people and like writers, you may see like, our peers on social media mm-hmm. are like always a point of frustration for me is seeing like, cause I feel like most of the writers that I know musical theaters are, are aren't don't have kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's, it's like a constant point of frustration for me to see people like posting like, Oh, up again till three in the morning writing or like <laughs> another writer retreat, like yeah. another, I this, another, that up again till three writing and not because of my, yeah, it's file. like, <laughs> it's like, I, cause like I'm someone who like, I have to squeeze most of my writing time. And like, after the kids are in bed, yeah. Yeah. I'm like up at six in the morning with the kids every day. Like I don't like we, it's basically just us with the kids. Like we aren't like independently wealthy. Like <laughs> some of the writers that we know, like mm-hmm. come from a lot of money. Like we don't, uh, like they can afford to, go on like endless retreats and whatever i mean you know like you you have to work for a living you know I like i just had my nine-year anniversary at my day job congratulations Thank you. so <laughs> like it's you know it's like it's it's hard like when you like are like raising kids and like trying to like write also i think about this all the time because i've had people sort of the converse like not warn me but like say to me sternly like you know when and if you have kids you're gonna have to give things up which i know is true and it's like it is weird thinking about, you know, because you feel like you're living at full capacity, whatever you're doing. And the idea of like, oh, you know, 30 hours a week will now go towards something else. I definitely worry about like, you know, yeah, like how I will live and write and have kids. I don't know how that will yeah, happen. It's, I mean, it's it's crazy. It definitely you have to like find time <laughs> that you didn't <laughs> think existed. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a shift. It's tricky. Do you feel like you approach your actual writing any differently? Like, do you feel like your process has become more efficient because it has to? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like I'm, w- once I start, I'm, I'm like, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm like rushing necessarily, but I feel like once I do start, I'm like, I just like go until I'm done. Yeah. And if that means that like I am up until like, two or whatever some night i like write from like eight to two uh i like if the goal is like i'm ending this night with like a demo that's finished then like i just have to do it um and the tricky thing is like if i have like a long day like i'm like teaching and then like i come home and then i'm like i'm like you know like with the kids until they go to bed like once they're in bed i like i don't want to do anything (laughs) like i don't want to write but I, I, if I have to, I have to, yeah. Yeah. which is why for, for someone like me who is like was always a natural procrastinator mm-hmm. and like still have that impulse, <laughs> I, I function very well with deadlines. I, mean, I just do. Yeah. Well, if I, I have to have something yeah. done at a certain time because I will get it done. And if I don't, I will be like, well, I'll just do it tomorrow because I'm just really tired tonight. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like on one end, I feel like rarely like five percent of the time there are times when giving up is correct when you're like i'm being so inefficient and bad right now i should cut my losses Mm -hmm. and not attempt to do this but most of the time i do think yeah that it's like a mark of professionalism to be like i can power through and deliver a thing Mm -hmm. well the one another good thing is that um i have a usually annoying commute from new jersey (laughs) to the city and back (laughs) so i do if i don't actually have to be in an instrument i can use that train Mm. ride which is pretty good because that's not it's not like riding the subway it is like being right. on like an actual train so i can like crouch down and like put my laptop on my knees and ruin my posture and <laughs> get some stuff done that way. do you feel like you've got i well not to <laughs> there's an there's an ins- assumption in my question that i don't mean to be there but like do you feel like you've gotten like less precious about your work since having kids yeah, I mean, I feel like I've gotten less precious about my work over time anyway. And sure. I think I think with 
kids that, that only has has gotten more so. Yeah. Because I feel like I just kind of like, just like kind of like do it. You're like, here it is. I like it. Great. As opposed to like, here it is. I like it. Could it be better? Oh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, I think now instead of like nitpicking as I go, I kind of just like get it done. And then I'll like listen back the next day and like take notes then. Because I used to kind of like go obsess over minutia while mm. I was doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, and I did that for a really long time. And I think it was very detrimental to my work. Uh, and now I just try and kind of push through a draft and be less judgy about it yeah. and then and then i'll go back later and i think I, I the clarity of of that helps uh and and then it feels like much more obvious to me what i would want to change that's interesting because i feel like for me like think back to the very beginning of our conversation about complacency once i have a draft that i think is pretty good i get so complacent and it becomes really hard for me to like actively engage with the thing anymore. Mm. I don't know why that happens to me. Well, Julia, <laughs> t- take a good hard look at yourself. <laughs> take a good hard look at songs one through four. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, sometimes I will, I mean, for me, the, the, ease, the place where I always got complacent the most was just like, yeah, it was like this, uh, this song is good enough. Uh, for, for me, the, the thing is, is, is generally like, when I push through a draft, I'll like, I'll like start like the nitpicking over like, oh this chord change is boring, mm-hmm. or like oh like this line feels like a little crammed and I can like smooth it out mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But in terms of like whether a song is working or not, that's not like yeah, that's that's, that's, that's not that's thing. not like a next day revelation. That's it's true. more about like fine tuning a thing that I'm like in the middle of. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So go easy on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can we talk about co-op? Yeah, yeah. Well, as we've been talking about, like, um, pastiche or, like, you know, like, aping styles, Mm -hmm. like, did... (laughs) It's... But it's... I watched it and I loved it. But I also love the documentary that it's based on. As do I, yeah. I haven't seen the documentary it's based on. I've only seen yours. And it's hard to watch now because when when co-op came out... uh, they pulled the original off of YouTube. Oh, really? Well, Which was the only I place that the you DVD could get it. In my apartment. Oh wow, that's <laughs> great because it's it's out of print and it's hard to find now. Um, Wait, so why did that happen? Sorry, not to interrupt your question, but uh, I think because they didn't want anyone watching it for free, and they do have mm. plans. I think, mm. although it's, I, I don't think it's determined exactly when it's happening, but they do have plans to like remaster it and and reissue it at some uh-huh. point, like within the next year or so. Um, but uh, un- unfortunately, that means that people can't watch it right now and for the foreseeable future, which is unfortunate. Okay. That's interesting because I would think the m- the most interesting part about this whole series documentary now is like <laughs> those sort of like comparing. Yeah, because they original. come really, cl- really close. Yeah. Like the parallels are really strong. Yeah. Um, Should we help our listeners again for anyone who doesn't know what what is Documentary Now and what is your episode? Oh, sure. Yes. Well, Documentary Now, if you don't know, is a series on IFC that was created by uh, Seth Meyers, Bill Hader, and Fred Armisen, which parodies uh, actual documentaries, like real-life documentaries like Grey Gardens or Thin Blue Line, I think is one. I don't know. Like, oh, like Ken Burns documentaries. uh Let's Get Lost, the the Chet Baker documentary, like all kinds of real documentaries, and uh, and shoots them like in the style, like the actual like cinematic style of the original documentaries. Uh, so like if you watch the original and the parody back to back, you'll see like how much fidelity there is to the original. Except that the the parodies are like you know they're they're parodies, they're mm-hmm. funny, they're they're ridiculous, they're um, but they are done I think with a lot of love also for the originals they're not like making fun of the originals they're like there's they're like very loving parodies um and it's such like a for like such a niche audience i think yeah uh like they're like you'd think like who who are these for like (laughs) how many people are really going to watch this well but especially i mean because the so the episode that you worked on is um the parody of the documentary about the making of the cast recording for 
the musical company. Yes. Which is already like extremely niche and like no one who's mm-hmm. like, let me watch a documentary is going to choose that one. You yeah. know what I mean? So my, my what I'm curious about <laughs> is uh, like how, like did you have to like, di- did that like come into the like creation of it? Like, like worrying about being too n- niche uh, I mean, luckily, I, I didn't really have to worry about about that aspect of oh, it. Oh, because they cause did the lyrics, right? Because yeah, because well, what happened was that um, the idea would like already existed. Yeah. Um, that it was is basically was was John Mulaney's baby. Like this is something that he had wanted to do. I think for <laughs> a while. I think he had maybe wanted to even do it in like the last season. Mm-hmm. Um. And I was just very, very lucky that I got asked to do this. Like, uh-huh. very, very, very lucky. Um, and You guys are buds, right? <laughs> I, um, <laughs> we are uh, working together on another thing, <sighs> and which I cannot talk about. <gasps> and uh, But I'm excited about it. And hopefully at some point in the next couple of months I can talk about it. Uh, but... Uh, it has been, it's been, it's, it's fun to write with him for sure. Uh, he's a very, very nice guy. And, um, so he had wanted to do this and, uh, he does like musical theater a lot, which is great and knows a fair amount about it and loves the original documentary, which is, is great. Um, and so he, had started writing a script, but the song started coming first before he wrote the script. And so there's, I, it's to try and talk about it and on the off chance that people, <laughs> the very strong chance that people <laughs> listening aren't, are, you know, one, not necessarily familiar with every song from company or mm. the, this, the documentary or, <laughs> the, or the documentary parody. Um, but I, I guess, I can't can't really worry about that. Yeah. So the f- the first song that was written was the one for Paula Pell, the Elaine Stritz song. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. So instead of "Ladies Who Lunch," it's called "I Gotta Go," um, <laughs> and so all, I mean, pretty much all John was John is like always traveling. He's like he started when we started writing. He was like ending his comedy tour, like a stand up tour that he'd been on for a year, and then he's like constantly like he's like in new york he's in los angeles he's like somewhere else so we didn't meet until the shoot started oh wow so uh but there was lots of phone calls there was lots of sending each other voice memos (laughs) um so he would i would like like voice memos that he would send at like three in the morning would just like pop up on my phone i would like wake up and they'd be there um so he would send me just like pages of lyrics and like voice memos of him kind of like talking through things uh Uh, and there's actually an episode of late night with seth myers where he's a guest and apparently i just found out yesterday that if you take a taxi right now in new york on taxi tv is a clip of him from that seth myers episode (laughs) where the moment where they play one of the voice memos is shown so if you take a taxi right now you will actually get to see that so uh, cool. Or you could just go on to uh, Hulu or yeah. YouTube and you can see that. <laughs> um, but there's, uh, so I would get these voice memos and I'm just like kind of like talking through the lyrics in, in some kind of rhythm. And then, and then so then my job would be to like, I would take those and I would, they were sometimes, sometimes would have exact form and sometimes wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And then I would, you know, futz or not futz with what he gave me depending and set that, set that to music. And so there was that, and then we did the opening number, and then there was like a month where like nothing <laughs> happened, and then the other four songs got written very quickly, and and Seth Meyers wrote one of the songs, and John wrote the other five. Uh-huh. I wish I'm sure because I heard some of those songs in a concert you did at Fifty Four Below. Were they? Were any of them longer than ended up in the episode? Um, almost all of them, and there is an album. <gasps> Which uh, they made some promo vinyl copies, which are out there in the world, but they're not for sale yet because I'm sure there are some extras. Um, there is a digital release that is coming of the album uh, that is happening in like a month or two. I don't know the exact date, but by summer at the latest, the album will be available on like iTunes and Spotify and Apple Music and all that. 
That's so cool. And there are there are significantly longer versions of almost all the songs. The opening yeah, I number think I is saw on that episode of Seth Meyers. Didn't Richard Kind perform the whole song? He performed the whole song, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which it is so, so great. Cool. I mean, for that effect of being out of breath, for it to be like that hunk of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, ex- I'm excited for the longer versions to be out there because yeah. I think, I think it adds something to those songs for their, them to be longer. One of my favorite lines in the episode is when Richard Kind goes up to the trumpet player. And That's my favorite thing. Uh, yeah. Am I bad at singing and acting? Yeah. <laughs> Because just such a turn. He's like, you guys, you guys are really what it's all about. You know what's, you're there every night. You know, am I bad at singing and acting? Yes. <laughs> He's so funny. That guy's a real character. Yeah. That's all, Rob. <laughs>